is a big one today. Kevin Martin from the band Candlebox. I've been a huge fan of theirs for a long time. I remember seeing them in Washington State at a thing called Rockstock. And they had a tool opening, actually, for them in 1994. And then I saw them again when uh, they opened for Metallica in Seattle. But their first album, that self-titled debut in 1993, was huge. Seven million copies worldwide. Uh, it's interesting, though, when researching the band, finding out how many other bands did not like Candlebox, including uh, Suicidal Tendencies, who were with them on that Metallica tour, and some of the other Seattle bands. Um, and we'll get into some of that. But they, they persevered, and I think they continue to make really great music, including, including their newest album, Wolves. And we'll talk about that one and all this stuff all the way from the beginning. So it's a great story. Enjoy it. Welcome, Kevin Barton of Candlebox. How are you doing? Well, I mean, obviously pretty bad. <laughs> Palm Springs, huh? Life. Weather's yeah. nice. It's beautiful. It's 103 today. Ooh, that's like hot. I'm in Phoenix. I don't even think we're in the hundreds yet. That's crazy. You're in Phoenix. You're wearing a Seahawks jersey. I know. I know. I'm, well, I'm from Seattle. And we'll, we'll talk oh, about, really? yeah, I'm from Seattle. I lived there my whole life. And then I moved here like 12 years ago just because of the weather. And probably same as you, you live in LA now. So you did the same thing. You left the weather. That's true. I ran as far away from it as I could. Yeah. <laughs> so I guess, I mean, there's, I don't know where to start with your story, but you grew up in San Antonio. Then you moved to Seattle when you were 14, despite about what yeah. some people think that you moved there in the nineties, you moved there in the eighties and um, your first show you played, you actually played the drums for a band called uh, radical youth penis brigade so tell me about that first yeah. show was that like when you knew this is it this is what i'm supposed to do is play music um well i don't know i mean i think for me it started really when i was young i i my father's a jazz musician my mother was a was a singer of the, the standards and classics and stuff so music was kind of always in my family um my first instrument was french horn and then i moved on to clarinet flute you know went from a large instrument to a small instrument and then back to a large instrument with the drums, which I picked up when I was like 12. Um, so I guess really the first time I started playing drums is that's when I knew that's exactly what I wanted to do was to be a musician. Um, I don't think I ever really thought that it would end up being, you know, that I would have a career 30 years later and still be doing this. But, um, you know, that first show, you know, in a friend's basement in front of, you know, 10 and 15 of your your high school friends and, and you're playing punk rock music. Um, there's nothing more thrilling. Um, you know, I'm still kind of the reluctant lead singer. I would much rather be a drummer in a band. So it's something that I've been chasing, you know, going on, uh, whatever I'm 52 now. So, you know, 40 years, I've been chasing that dream of being a drummer in a rock and roll band and I'm still singing. <laughs> so, you know, uh, it's, it's the downside of, of, of being, you know, uh, who I am from Seattle and singing in Candlebox. Yeah, it's not the worst thing to get stuck with, though. I mean, there's like people that get stuck in government jobs and all sorts of terrible things. So true story. True but, story. And speaking of bad jobs, so tell me about this shoe store that you worked at as a teenager. Um, so it was owned by Susan Silver, who managed Soundgarden and Allison Chains. So all these Seattle band people are just popping in, like Andrew Wood from Mother Love Bone and Chris Cornell, and and is that where you made a lot of these uh, musicians, other musicians? Yeah, well, the relationship, Susan didn't own it. She just oh, managed it. Okay, so, sorry. It was called John, John Fluvok Shoes. He was a um, he was a, a shoe designer that came down from Canada. Um, he initially had a, a company called Fox and Fluvog, which was Peter Fox and John Fluvog. And they were just kind of pushing the, you know, the, the boundaries of kind of that British um, punk rock, rock and roll shoe wear that everybody's wearing creepers and, and pointy shoes and 
and the platform boops and Doc Martens and stuff. So it was the place in Seattle where you would get those. And Susan was managing it. Um, and at the same time, she had an office behind um, the shoe store um, that she managed the bands out of. And that was mm. Soundgarden, Allison Chain, Screaming Trees, um, a lot of that kind of historical great grunge that came out of Seattle. Susan was the original manager. Um, and the band guys would come in to get flyers. She would print the flyers up and say, stop by Blue Box and grab your flyers. Because Seattle's, you remember, it's one of those cities where you could actually still tag a telephone pole. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of how that started. And that's where I met all the guys. Which, where was and, the and, shoe store though? Which part of Seattle? I mean, probably most people don't know Seattle, but I mean, we, I used to go down there all the time. We take the bus and go to downtown Seattle. Was it in Queen Anne or where? No, no. It was right on first Avenue. I think first in, in, um, pine. Oh, okay. Um, first in pine or what's the one that's Z Z club was next to, uh, whatever street that was wall maybe. Okay. Um, so it was right across the street, um, from like, uh, Z club. But it's in Pike Place Market. So oh, it first, okay. First so it's by the fish thing. And all, yeah. Yeah. So it was right down mm. there. And um, it's now like a, a coffee shop or a delicatessen or uh. something. But um, yeah. So, and I was living down on First Avenue at, uh, at um, Stewart. So um, I would just walk up to, to work every day, which is great. You know I mean? Oh, so that, you were living cool. like in the heart of it. You weren't in the suburbs or something. No, my parents took, when we first moved to Seattle, moved to Mercer Island, um, which, oh. you know, I couldn't stand, which is a, you know, <laughs> <laughs> a little suburb in between the east yeah. side and, and Seattle. It's an upper um, class, so, I guess you would say, for people who don't know the area. It's it's like the Beverly Hills of Seattle, right? Yeah, it really is. I mean, Mercer Island is incredibly wealthy. The funny mm-hmm. thing is, is, you know, obviously, you know, I lived right across the street from the school, so not on the wealthiest part of the island. But, you know, it did have it. It did have its um, its uh, projects, if you will. Hmm. I didn't the, know the lo- lower income housing, you know, not, not lower income housing in the sense of like the Bronx or something like that, you know, but, but really it had a, it had a part of the Island that was affordable and, um, and it was right across from the high school. So, which was nice because I could just walk to school every day. But as soon as I got the chance to get downtown, I did, I think I, I, that was, I left, um, high school middle of my senior year, uh, in 87 and was moved downtown and, I take the bus if I needed to go back to class, but I really, I didn't really finish school. I got my degree, my, my, um, high school diploma from basically work. I really didn't have any school to finish up. So I was one of the lucky ones that was able to leave, you know, high school at the age of 17 and start working downtown. Yeah. So it was around this time around, uh, age 1887, you kind of had a pivotal moment that changed the course of your life forever. I think, um, you stole money from your parents to buy drugs and, you, but you went to go see this concert and it was midnight oil and the singer Peter Garrett floored you so much that you quit. You kind of dependent on drugs. You said, and you, you quit your dependency on drugs, not necessarily you, you still smoke weed or do mushrooms, but you quit. You didn't want to be like dependent on that. So what was it about that performance that made you quit drugs? Is it, I don't know his backstory. Is he a former addict or was it what, something about the music or what was it? No, I, I, I don't know if he's a former addict or not. Um, I think it was just the sense that he was so commanding um, and, and so um, such a force to be reckoned with as, as a lead singer. The, the show was the Beds Are Burning tour, which, of course, was, you know, a, a huge, hugely successful record for them. Um, and um, and they were touring the States on it. And it just it scared the shit out of me to the point where I was like, that's what I want to do. And if I'm going to do that, I need to stop, you know, um, 
running away from what it is that I want. And, and these drugs, that's what they do. So I did actually quit drugs entirely, um, except, you know, I, I, I occasionally do mushrooms and, and, you know, like you said, smoke pot, because I believe that that's, if it comes from the ground, it's, it's, it should be put in your body. But, um, so what drugs you know, were you doing else? at the time that you like, were you doing like ecstasy and Coke or something? Or? Yeah. A lot of, a lot of that bad psychedelic stuff, acid and whatnot, you know, um, oh, okay. which was just, which was just not good. It wasn't benefiting me in any way, which shape whatsoever. So yeah, that was it. I mean, that show changed my entire direction. Uh, oh. That's why I named the band Candlebox actually after one of his uh, lyrics as well. I mean, he just, he was such a, um, an important part of my life at that moment um, just by being who he was. Yeah. So then, yeah. So when you form Candlebox uh, again, you were a drummer, but somebody asked you to, Hey, can you sing on these demos? And you're like, uh, I'm not a singer, but they must've heard something. Cause they heard you do backup vocals or something. How did they know that you could sing that well? Uh, I don't think they knew I could sing well. Um, you know, Rick was a, an interesting character. He, uh, uh, his name is Rick Vaughn. He was, he was the, actually this guitar player that uh, was running with super cool studios in Seattle as well, uh, as an engineer. And he'd heard me singing like at a friend's party or something like just, you know, hanging out and somebody mm. was playing acoustic and, we're just singing, you know, Black Crow songs and stuff. And, and, um, and he's like, man, you should come sing on some stuff. I got this kind of bluesy thing going, um, which was called Uncle Duke. And that was with Scott Mercado, um, Candlebox's original drummer, and his bass player named Perry Alpinas. And I was like, sure. So I started singing on the stuff, and that was it. That was that what became Candlebox, and that was the, the rest of my career. Did you guys have any other names you tossed around before? I mean, obviously Uncle Duke, but th- was there anything else before you decided on Candlebox or? No, we, we, we just had that day where we, we had hired our bass player, Barty. Um, we had some shows that we were starting to book and we had to commit to something as a band name. Mm-hmm. None of us were crazy about uncle Duke. Um, Rick had already left the band at that point mm-hmm. and uh, Perry had left as well. So Scott, Pete, Barty and myself just sat down and started going through lyrics of our favorite songs. And, oh. and I came across this lyric in the Minato song boxed in like candles. Cause he's, t- he's speaking about the Aboriginal tribes in Australia. And I thought that was a really beautiful um, imagery um, that he was trying to metaphorically speak to these people that you can't just put in this box. You know, they're, they're way too bright for that. Um, and so I, I said, what about Candlebox? And the guy's like, that's great. There you that. go. So then the first couple shows, I mean, it's, you're not selling out arenas in the first shows. Like it's like six people showing up, but then I think, was there some girl that kind of helped you out? Like she was either a fan or a girl you were dating and she brought her friends yeah, your girlfriend at the time. So she brought her friends and then it just kind of grew. And then you start playing all by 92, you're playing some of the biggest clubs in Seattle. But so for those first few years before you guys got signed, like talk about the scene at that time, playing the clubs in Seattle. That's gotta be a lot. You're smiling. You must love this time. Uh, no, it was awful, man. I mean, it was we awful. Were, really? We, we, we were, you know, we were considered. And, and I think probably if you ask a lot of the bands, you know, from Seattle that were successful or, or had some sort of um, minor success, they, I think they all would tell you that they didn't know where we came from. We kind of came out of nowhere. Um, hmm. Pete and, you know, Scott had a career and a history, you know, with metal bands in Seattle, Myth and Realms, you know, Jeff Tate's first band. And, mm-hmm. You know, but that really wasn't the scene in, in the 90s. It was this kind of, you know, grunge rock and roll, whatever you want to call it. I call it acid rock um, that was happening. So, you know, here comes these guys from, you know, the East side, um, playing this kind of big arena rock style of music in friends' basements. And we couldn't get a gig in any of the clubs in Seattle. Um, no one would, would let us play. 
Um, then we produced this tape. Um, we recorded on Easter Sunday uh, of 92, which that's what Far Behind and, and You came from those demos. The, those are actually the demos that are on the album. Um, and we had that tape and we started shopping it around. And then our friends um, in a band called Sweetwater gave us our very first kind of big sold out gig. They were headlining Rock Candy and they had us open and that was it. it that was what kicked it off for us. But we couldn't get a gig uh, in any of the clubs in Seattle to save our lives. We had to play this place called Mad Dogs, which was like um, North Seattle. We had to play West Seattle, at like some sports club. No one would give us a gig in any of the, the major venues in the city. So what year was that when Sweetwater gave you the gig? 92. 92. So that's when you started playing the, the big club. So then I'm assuming you're playing like Rock Candy and Crocodile and Deviate and uh, Far Side and all those great clubs that people from Seattle probably don't know, but. Yep. Okay. It, Hotel. Ditto. Yeah. Oh yeah. Okay. Hotel. I forgot about that place. So I heard you say that there was no camaraderie in Seattle. Like Kurt Cobain hated everyone. Um, you know, Pearl Jam and Allison Chains. There wasn't much love between them. Uh, but maybe the Melvins, everybody loved the, Mel they seem to get along with everyone, right? Yeah. I mean, the Melvins, I think, and Mudhoney or Green River, if you will, those were kind of the, you know, the, the founding. So the camaraderie thing is interesting because Mudhoney and, and the Melvins um, really, as you know, Mudhoney, Mark Arm being from Green River, Green River was kind of that real foundation of, of what was happening with the punk scene up there, of course. And then when Nirvana came along and the, su the success of Bleach, everybody kind of thought that was going to be the real movement. Um, although Soundgarden had the stronghold on, on like the real rock and roll thing that was happening and Alice in Change was kind of up and coming. Um, really, it was that kind of Mark Arm had kind of established that sort of relationship with all these bands. So they all kind of incestually played together, um, each one of those musicians um from you know jeff and, and stone from from pearl jam were in green river with mark mm -hmm. and and i think that uh king buzzo and mark had something happen before green river so you know it all was kind of like everybody had played in the same band but the interesting thing is, is like with alice in chains um pearl jam goes out with alice in chains as mookie Blaylock and um i think for like three or four weeks something like that uh but pearl jam's never taken Alice in Chains on the road ever. But didn't, uh, didn't but Pearl Jam and uh, Sound or uh, yeah, Pearl Jam and Soundgarden formed Temple of the Dog and then uh, Mad Season was members of Pearl Jam, Alice in Chains and Screaming Trees. So isn't there some connections there like you said? Like well, that's that's so, well actually Pearl Jam and Soundgarden didn't do Temple of the Dog. Chris Cornell did Temple of the Dog and Eddie Vedder sang on it. Um and that was before uh, Pearl Jam's Pearl Jam. That's when they were Mookie Blaylock and of course if you're talking about the relationship with Chris and Jeff and Stone, that all comes from the Green River days, right? So that's mm -hmm. what I was saying earlier because it's so ancestral. Um, so it just kind of seemed like, even though there were those kinds of relationships, Pearl Jam's never really kind of, um, I don't know, been super supportive of really the kind of anyone from the, the Seattle scene. Mad Season was Mike McCready, with Lane Staley and Mark Lanigan um, from Screaming Trees and Barrett Martin from Screaming Trees. Um, but again, it's, it's not the same thing. Like those relationships had, had, you know, had been spawned years before, but 
it didn't really, it wasn't like everybody was talking about one another's records in interviews or like saying, Oh, mm. you should buy the new Alice in Chains record, you know, or, or Eddie Vedder saying, God, that, you know, the new Alice record's brilliant. Lane sounds amazing. There was not, there was none of that. Um, huh. And, and it, it was a very, it was a very clicky scene in Seattle. Um, and so we were always kind of considered the redheaded stepchild of that scene. Um, like I'd mentioned earlier, you know, if yeah. you ask any of the bands that, that had any kind of success, they would say, well, we didn't even know where the fuck Candlebox came from. Hmm. Well, somebody must have liked you because they signed you. And then you, so you get this, the debut album. I love it. I love the album then. And I love it now, but the artwork, I mean, there are some iconic artwork uh, albums, you know, like Don McLean from uh, American pie, that thumb, you know, the, I, ha I was, I had him on the show. I was asking him about that. And even the Seattle bands like Nirvana, Nevermind, the baby and Allison chains dirt. But your guys' cover, that's the one thing I never understood. It's the band. It's a picture of the band. It's not a bad picture, but you guys are in a field of flowers. What was the story behind that? Those are the, those are the tulips that they have um, that they grow every year for the tulip festival that happens in Washington State. So, um, yeah, yeah. Okay. And so we went out, we went out to um, uh, Bainbridge Island. Or not Bainbridge. What island did we go to? Uh can't remember one of the orcas islands up there oh, okay. and that's where most of the flowers are shot we wanted something that kind of represented the band in the sense that we're not like this you know heavy you know dark uh, melancholic band where there's something light to what we do hmm. um and there's and there's beauty to the rock and kevin uh Kurslik, who shot the pictures for us um he he it was all um that was all his his idea um, to to go out there and shoot, and of course the iconic drive through theater that, or drive in theater that's out there uh, on the Orcas Islands, and you know all of it kind of. There's a mausoleum out there, which a lot of people don't know about. That's that's out there as well. So it really was about kind of establishing the band um, in in our kind of our own world um, rather than um, you know kind of going along with a lot of the other imagery that was happening with kind of the album covers. Um, at, at the time up there uh or kevin westlake rather i'm sorry not Kev kevin kerslake uh or i'm saying his last name wrong um anyways but soundgarden ended up using him um on the super unknown record mm. and um he shot a lot of their uh a lot of the footage um for their album and and uh videos and stuff in the same place that he shot us so um it, it, it i think it kind of you must say a little bit about you know what people think of of the band rather than um you know, uh, we're just a couple knuckleheads that some guys getting paid to take pictures of. Yeah. So I think this is, you, you talk about the back to the camaraderie thing. Like you talk about, um, you know, that there wasn't that kind of, you know, people weren't trying to help each other out, but you guys, you make it, I mean, you got this album, it's doing well. Um, and so you offered to take out your peers on the road, Sweetwater, the band Sweetwater and, uh, Green Apple Quickstep, who are both great Seattle bands. If people don't know, they should check them out. Uh, but they actually turned you down. Because I, was there yeah, some resentment well, that, that they thought that they should have been the ones that be, you should be opening for them? Well, Sweetwater didn't turn us down. They actually came out with us. And oh, we're, did they? we're okay. still really great. We're, yeah, we're still really great friends with them. But it wasn't so much the Green Apple Quick Step guys um, didn't want to go out with us. It was management. They were managed by Kelly uh, Curtis, who manages Pearl Jam. And, uh, and Kelly's, I guess the girl who was there, Krisha, was their manager. Um, she just didn't think it was the right fit for Green Apple. Um, years later, when I asked Ty, you know, why did you, you know, you never went out on the road with us. He's like, you never asked. I was like, dude, we've been asking you to tour with us 
the past three records. Um, and, uh, you know, it, that kind of upset him that his management never hmm. bothered to tell them that we had invited him, you know, um, but we did take goodness out with us. Carrie Ockery, um, uh, who was in a band called Hammerbox back in the day, uh, and Chris and Rick Friel were in goodness uh, with Danny Newcomb. Uh, Chris and Rick, of course, were in shadow with Mike McCready. Um, so, you know, we we were able to take some of the bands that we were, you know, good friends with on the road. And some of them would go out with us. You know, we we liked, um, you know, touring with our friends, you know, and that was a thing that we wanted. And um, it was, you know, it was difficult to be Candlebox from Seattle. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't an easy uh, it wasn't an easy process at all, uh, being those, those kids that, you know, nobody really wanted to see succeed. Yeah. And it's an interesting, it's kind of like this ethical dilemma that, that you faced at one point, you're doing a show in Boston and there's a Seattle band. I won't say the name. You can say it if you want, but there's a Seattle band. My sister's uh, machine. Okay. <laughs> and his name was Owen. Okay. Owen. Uh, okay. So anyway, so your, your, your equipment breaks down. And these guys have no. talked shit, or no, I'm sorry, their equipment breaks down. And uh, these guys have talked shit about you for years. And, you know, the, I don't know what they said. They talk shit about you. And, um, and so they, but then, uh, you know, they said, oh, well, you do, we'll just use Candlebox equipment. We, we know them. We're, we're both from Seattle. So they'll let us use it. It'll be fine. And I'm thinking of this as an ethical dilemma. Now, this is the chance for Candlebox to take the high road and step up. And then I, th- I rethought it and I go, wait a minute. No, because you know why? If you did that and you let them use your equipment, you're basically enabling them and, and say, and letting them talk shit and get away with it. And now you're kind of, I think you're kind of teaching them a lesson because basically you told them to fuck off. Right. Well, no, we, we didn't. What, oh, okay. we, we did let them use oh, what you they did. wanted to do. They wanted to swap places with us on the show and oh. they wanted, and we were direct support at the time of mighty, mighty boss tones. And it was for um, WAF uh, radio show in Boston and our single uh, change and you they were, you know, going gangbusters in Boston. Um, so like, oh, well, our gear will arrive, you know, in time for us. So, you know, maybe we'll just, we'll just swap a candle box and, you know, they can take our slot. We're like, that's not happening, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and our, and it wasn't really us that said it, it was our tour manager, Mark, um, who had been the tour manager for the Chili Peppers for years, uh, had been in the punk scene for a long, long time. And he knew, he knew what was going on. And he went to them and he said, listen, I know what kind of shit you talk about the band um, and the, this isn't coming from them. This is coming from me and um, we're not going to let you do it. I'm not going to let you use the gear. They're not even going to know about this. And we didn't know about it until uh, honestly about a year later when um, we mm. ended up getting drunk with, with Owen, um, the guitar player uh, at a bar in Seattle. And he's like, yeah, your, your tour manager came in and said, you know, you guys can go fuck yourselves. And he said, and he was right. You know, we were being dicks about the whole thing. Um, but you know, it, sometimes that you know that happened to us a lot and sometimes you do have to take the upper hand and say you know you you sleep in the bed you made and we're sorry your gear's not here but you're certainly not going to take our fucking time slot but we let them use our gear and um and and uh and and they had a good show um we never played with them again um but you know um it's it's just one of those things you know i i i don't know if you know the band grunt truck from oh yeah yeah, I was a huge tribe. Fan of the song "Tribe" is so good. Yeah, and um, and that lead singer um, was a total dick to me. You know, at the off ramp one night when he asked me, uh, you know, how the hell did you guys sell out three nights at the Paramount? And I, and I said, I I go honestly, man, I, I I don't know what to tell you. I, I I don't really have an answer to that. And he's like, yeah, I don't know either. Um, you know, Jesus. and that's that's kind of the shit. That's the shit we got in Seattle. But you know, it made us a better band. And and at the end of the day, you know, 
we're still here. We're still making music and, you know, people can say what they want and talk the kind of shit they want, but at the end of the day, it's, it's really about your music and, and, um, and who you are inside that, that matters. So how do you deal with that? Like mentally, does it piss you off? Does it make you sad or do you just laugh it off? Well, I mean, with Ben, you know, cause I loved grunt truck so much and, yeah. um, and, and, and sadly he passed away of leukemia, I think a couple of years ago. Um, it that really hurt because I, I, I thought for sure, you know, he of all people would, you know, be the one to say, man, congratulations. But, you know, I mean, there just was, people were bitter in that city um, because like I said earlier, nobody really knew who we were and where we came from. People assumed we'd moved there to get signed, even though I'm the only one who moved to Seattle, Barty and Pete and Scott were all born there. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, um, but it just, it's not, you know, I laugh it off now, but of course at the time it probably broke my heart. Um, especially Ben, just because I, I respected him so much, but you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's all good. You know, I, I mean, we're still here and you know, life moves on. Do you feel like you deserved your success? Oh, I don't know. Uh, I don't know if deserved is the right word. I think we worked really hard as a band to get where we are. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, um, the rapid success of the band, certainly I don't think, um, what helped at all. I mean, it was, um, it was just too fast. We couldn't really balance the the success with, you know, our responsibilities as musicians. But um, uh, I, I think we certainly worked hard enough for it. Um, deserved, I think, is a real is a really weird word when it comes to art. Um, huh. You know, I, I, I think if if you work hard enough and you achieve what it is that that you set out to accomplish, then then that's your success. Um, deserve. I don't know if you think about the word, it's, it's, there's just a lot of negative in deserving something. Um, And, uh, and I, and I just would rather not use that word. I think with, with Candlebox success. Fair enough. Okay. So 90, 1994, you guys did a show called Rockstock. I don't know if you remember that one. Uh, I was there, my buddies were there and tool opened for you guys. I, I'm not a huge tool fan, but I like tool. I had a tool hat actually, Uh, but I have a couple buddies who are diehard tool fan. So I'd be, I got to ask, is there some sort of memory or tidbit or anything about tool? Did you have any inter- interactions with them at the show or? Um, yeah, well, I mean, uh, I think, you know, uh, Adam, is it Adam? The guitar player, uh, is originally from the tri cities, um, or oh, he grew up in the tri cities. So, that. um, we had friends that were, you know, uh, friends with them. Um, I got to, you know, how many bands in their lifetime can say the tool opened for us? Um, yeah. I, to be honest with you, I think it was a co-headline bill, but, um, but you, you guys know, played last though. Radio. I remember technically. Yeah. And Radiohead was on another one. We did that, that Radiohead opened for us as right. well. So <laughs> I got that going. For That's me. cool. Um, but you know, they were great guys. I mean, listen, I, I first saw them, they came through when we were making our first record. Um, they came through Seattle and played the rock candy and there were about 15 people in the audience. Um, and that was just after opiate, uh, had come out the EP. So, mm. Um, Seattle wasn't really, um, keen on who they were at that point. And, um, and I was one of those people, one of those 15 people that showed it was amazing. Hmm. So to watch that growth of, of, um, of, uh, undertow to what it became, I mean, and, and what tool has become since then is, uh, mind blowing. And I think, uh, that band is, you know, next to traffic and, and, um, you know, cream and, you know, any of those kind of prog rock rush bands, you know, stuff like that uh tool is just every single record's mind bending. I don't know how they do that. And and I certainly don't know how 
Maynard, you know, waits until the record's done to do his vocals. I mean, that's, I think, a really interesting thing. He does hmm. the same thing with Perfect Circle. Um, the band's finished the record, then he goes in and sings his parts. Um, I think the only band that he actually writes the music and the, and the lyrics at the same time is Pussifer. Mm, so he's a okay. fascinating, he's a fascinating human being and a yeah. really, really nice guy. I'd love to have him on the show someday. He, he's, he'd be a tough interview though, too. Cause he's kind of an introvert. I for think one. So, yeah. 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 Super. And he's having trouble cause he had COVID and he's having a yeah. lot of trouble with his um, lungs. Oh, terrible. Uh, but yeah. yeah, so you guys, it's interesting. I feel like maybe they didn't really know where to place you as a band. Like, cause you guys opened for rush and Metallica and, um, and then I remember, uh, 1994 metal edge magazine uh, said you guys were the best new band. Were you flattered by that? Or did you kind of want to stay away from the, the met, the heavy metal label? Oh, I mean, of course you don't, nobody wants to be labeled metal unless you're a metal band. We were, you know, for us, we were just like an alternative pop rock band. Um, mm -hmm. very similar to Pearl Jam, you know, just an yeah. arena rock band that wrote big soaring songs, you know, um, I've often compared us to, you know, the journey of Seattle um, and Pearl Jam, in my opinion, you know, was kind of like the Def Leppard of Seattle, um, just with big, great, big rock arena rock songs. That Pearl Jam 10 album is, you know, just full of sweeping melodies and big solos and and um, and great rock songs, you know, and, and uh, we always kind of compared ourselves to just an arena rock band, blues based rock and roll. Um, the metal thing was something that Maverick tried really, really hard to stay away from our label. And, um, you know, it was inevitable because we all had long hair and we were playing rock and roll. I mean, Pearl Jam was on metal edge, you know, it's sure. If spin magazine takes you under their, under their wing, then all of a sudden you're alternative. Um, they, that didn't happen to us. Hmm. Yeah. So, um, you did kind of have a little bit of a friendship with Lane Staley from Alice in Chains, right? Didn't tell me the story about, he gave you like some sort of a mad season, uh, album cover that, uh, uh, or album was like an etching of the album cover that, you know, was kind of a special gift. You still have that? I do. He gave me three of them. Um, he did etchings for that album and then they ended up using the one of him and Demery, uh, as the album cover. And, uh, I was at his apartment, um, with my buddy, uh, Johnny Bacalus and Aaron Saravo and, um, and Mike McCready was there and then we were all hanging out and Lane had just gotten out of rehab and, and was doing well. And just, we were catching up and, and I was looking through the, the etchings. He's like, Hey man, you should take a couple of those. And I was like, yeah, I can't do that. And he's like, Oh, please take as many as you want. And he's like, bring them over here. I'll sign them. And so I did. And then McCready was like, do you made me pay for mine? And Lane's like, yeah, but you're not a singer. Um, and that was kind of, you know, we all kind of laughed. It was, that was really the first time anybody in, in the Seattle music scene kind of, you know, recognized what I was doing as a musician. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, uh, and, and it was, it was nice. I mean, Lane was such a sweetheart. He was a, the kindest, most gentle rock star I, I'd ever met and known. And, um, and I, you know, it's sad to, 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 to learn of his passing the day my mom called me and woke me up when, when he passed. And I had just seen him a couple of weeks before in Seattle, at a coffee shop, and he looked really good and healthy. Um, so, you know, everybody was, you know, cheering for him. Um, but you know, those demons, those, those heroin demons are a motherfucker. Yeah. Tell me about it. But so you guys, you know, I don't think anyone in the band did heroin, but you kind of, this is around the time that you started to kind of get into the, some people got into the drugs a little too much. Is that kind of, cause I always wondered with that second album, like, I don't even know. And again, I lived in Seattle. I don't even remember hearing the songs on the radio. And I was like wondering like what happened. And then I kind of did some research and it sounds like not only the drug thing, 
but also it was like the perfect storm because Maverick Records they had just fired all their was this a, no was it was a Happy Pills where they fired all their uh, promotions people? No, yeah, Lucy was the record where um, they were focused on Alanis Morissette and the Deftones. Deftones, right? Yeah. Um, that, that's why you know Alanis's record had come out while we were recording, and the Deftones was coming out in the fall or the spring of next year, or the following year rather. So we were kind of um, we were kind of thrown in, in on the back burner by the label, um, and then of course there was a you know uh, a lot of issues within the band going on that made it very difficult to record that record. So. I yeah, mean, didn't you had, play drums yeah. on some of the songs? Yeah, I played drums on some of the songs, played guitar on, on a lot of stuff. Um, and um, and yeah, we just we struggled to to get that record done. I ultimately um kind of said to the label, I think we need to put this record away and, and revisit it, give us a little more break because I don't think we we're ready, but they kind of forced us to put it out. And it was mm-hmm. um, you know, it wasn't the best record for us to, to do at the time. Yeah, and then so then the third album, the uh, the Happy Pills, the single, uh, it's all right. I love that song. It's like so brilliant. Um, but this is kind of the point where now you guys you want to be done with Maverick Records because I think this is when they fired the promotions team. And so tell me this story. Like you're actually see, I always thought I know Madonna owned Maverick Records, but I thought she was more like a silent partner. But you like talked to her on the phone and shit. Like you were arguing arguing with her trying to get out of the contract. Yeah, we had a, we had a long argument. Um, Freddie Demand, who had started the label with Madonna, they were buying him out of the label. They didn't want him running it anymore, and um, and it was just kind of it, it seemed like it was a, a a runaway train at that point. It was on a, a a track that was really really wobbly, and they didn't really have any direction, and, and they didn't know what they were doing. That was our opinion, of course. You know, what did we know? We we're just you know through four guys in a band, you know, playing rock and roll, but, um, we could feel that things were slipping and, um, and Freddie actually, the, the owner of the label just said, listen, don't, don't make this record. Just try and get out of your contract because they're buying me out and it's not going to be good. And, um, and of course it wasn't, I mean, there was, it's all right. was a, a single that I don't even know if it reached the top 10 uh, on any format. Um, I think it was two on then, the rock songs. Oh, was it? I think so. Uh, and then we, we tried to follow that up with um, sometimes, but I always felt that the first single should have been happy. Pills. You know, if we're going to be a rock and roll band and that's where our, our foundation uh, 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 in the music business was, that's where we're going to live. We should release a rock song called, you know, which is happy pills, which is my favorite song on that record. Um, and they fought us on it. And of course they went with it's all right. Cause they were trying to cross over. Like um, I think uh, train had done with, uh, you know, like a, they were about to release drops of Jupiter oh, okay. or, or it had just yeah. come out. So they thought that we were going to cross over like that. And, um, and it didn't happen. You know, it was, a, it was a, again, you know, record, I think now it's, it's just about to go gold. Hmm. Um, you know, you think like our first record sold 7 million copies worldwide, four in the States. Our second record sold a million worldwide. And our third record's only, you know, only about to go gold. It's a, it's quite a decline. Why? And why do you think that was? Cause I hear this new stuff you're making and it's really good. So I, I don't understand and, the music business sometimes. Well, you know, I mean, we weren't, we weren't media darlings. Um, there wasn't, you know, an interview with the band, every record that came out, there wasn't, you know, a Rolling Stone album cover or a magazine cover. There wasn't a spin magazine cover. There wasn't, mm-hmm. you know, reviews of our records. I mean, it just, uh, people thought that far behind was, that was going to be it for us. And, and they left us alone. Now our fans, hmm. of course, have kept us alive for 30 years now, but yeah. um, you know, your fans don't, um, your fans don't 
keep you in the public eye, um, you know, like a, a marketing team does, you know, and, and I think that that was the real um, fall for, was with the band was, it, you know, Maverick lost this entirely great marketing team from Warner Brothers. Mm. And, you know, we lost in that process um, our uh, image, if you will. Yeah. Okay. Well, so, I mean, around this time you, um, you still had to do some, I think you, you had a throat issue and you had to cancel some shows, but then you got an offer to open up for Aerosmith. I mean, so it's still even 98, you say the record's not doing as well, but you're still opening for Aerosmith. That's pretty cool. So I think there was a short time around this time that, uh, Shannon Larkin was in the band. I'm just curious, uh, cause that guy's been a, a part of three, uh, iconic band, three of my favorite bands, uh, ugly kid, Joe Candlebox, and Godsmack. Like, what is the secret to his success? I mean, obviously he's a phenomenal drummer, but he must be really like a joy to work with too, to continue to get that kind of work and be invited to these projects. Shannon's a, Shannon's a, an incredibly talented drummer. Um, but more than that, he's a beautiful human being. He's got a great soul. He's a kind, kind person. Mm. Uh, and he's just a lot of fun to be with, man. He, 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 when he digs into songs and, and, the writing process and playing. I mean, it's, it's just a joy to watch. And he was managed um, when he was in snot. Um, we were managed by John Reese uh, during the happy pills record. Mm-hmm. And, and John had managed snot um, uh, when Shannon was playing that. And then an ugly kid, of Joe, ugly kid, Joe as well. So when Dave Cruzen left uh, um, in um, 1999, uh, John Reese just called and said, listen, I, I managed this kid, Shannon, who played in snot and, and ugly kid Joe. And I was like, I love them. And he came down to rehearsal and, and we just hit it off right away. Yeah. Okay. So then you did some more shows and then um, eventually the band kind of falls apart. You do some solo stuff and then you did this band uh, called the gracious few with uh, it was like basically like a super group with you and some Candlebox members and members of, uh, of live. Tell me about that gr- group. Did that, what happened with that one? <laughs> that was a labor of love, man. Um, that was a record that, that made no money cost us a fortune to make. Um, oh. but you know, we're all the best of friends and that, you know, that's kind of why we did it. Ed was on the outs with the guys. Um, they were looking to work with somebody that, that maybe they could enjoy working with a little more. And, um, and Chad Taylor called me up and said, let's do something. I was like, I'd love to, you know, we talked about it for years. I'd known them since 1992. Um, uh, but like, you know, we had no record deal. We had no label. We just made this record and put it out and went out on the road in a, in a tour bus. And we basically, we played shows for whatever the door, you know, whatever the door collected. Hmm. Uh, it was very punk rock and it was a lot of fun to do. Hmm. And, um, and I think, you know, we all kind of teased that we, we were dying to do it again, just because it's such an outlet for the five of us really, yeah. um, to make music that there's no real, you know, there's no strings attached to it. It's whatever we want to do. And, um, it's more like a jazz fusion, <laughs> you know, no, I'm just kidding, but it's, it's, we really just we, we make what we want to make, you know, and, and I love those guys. And, and, um, and, and we talk, you know, constantly on the phone and, and we keep in touch with one another, uh, at least once a month because we just really, we really love one another as brothers. That's awesome. So then, yeah. And then you get back to with a, together with Candlebox. you guys do a best of record. You do a record called into the sun. That was a tough one. And then, but the, the 2016 album, uh, not your latest one, but the you know the one before that, disappearing in airports. You say that was your favorite record that you made, and I have a question. This is just a total selfish question because I think I'm the weirdo. I really like the song "I Want It Back." 
I feel like it's so catchy. I love the backing vocals. It's got a great bass line and a chorus. This song wasn't even released as a single. Like, you, but you got to give me something about that song. I can't stop listening to it. I love that song. How, I mean, Thank you. how would you describe it to the listener? I'm terrible at describing music, but I just, I think it's such a good song. Thank you. I, um, I love that song as well. We, we mm. wanted, we wanted the label to release it as a single. They just didn't have the marketing budget to do it. Mm. Um, cause that's, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I have a distribution deal, indie deal with, um, payment entertainment. So okay. if they don't, if they don't have the marketing money to do it, we can't go after the single. Um, but that song was inspired by um, uh, Ryan Adams' cover version of "Out of the Woods" uh, by Taylor Swift off of her 1989 record. Um, and I had I had been listening to Ryan Adams' 1989 album, and his version of "Out of the Woods" felt so desperate and alone. And I just put myself in the position to imagine, you know, if I fucked up my relationship with my wife and my son like you know how that must really how it would destroy me and i wanted to write a song around that so that's kind of where i came up with that you know lyrical process of that record you know it's like you know i i, I fucked up and you know let me let me fix it and and then you know how many guys go through that or how many you know women or men get an opportunity for a second chance if they do something like that you know um and and that's really where it came from and it's and it's it's got a you know huge Kings of Leon influence yeah. as well, which I I love the Kings of Leon, um, but yeah, it was it was a, a really easy song to write. You know, once I was able to put myself in the perspective of uh, of that you know character of of losing everything and, and trying to repair it. Okay, yeah, because I that that makes sense then. Yeah, because that's like emotionally, I feel like it, it hit me and also just so catchy. So I, I'm surprised that. Thank you. I feel like you could put that song on like a, either a nineties rock or today's rock hits playlist. And everyone would say this fits right in with every other like great song. Right? So yeah. Oh, thank you. It's thank one you of those much. hidden gems that I, it was funny. I asked uh Vinnie Dombrowski, I, you've toured with sponge and I asked yeah. him a question one time. I said, you know, of the albums that you've made since the big one, what song, there was like one song that um, he thought should have been a hit. And I went back and listened to it after the interview and I was like, this is a really good song. I don't remember what it was now, but there's so many songs like that that should be huge that aren't. I hate that. It makes me mad. But yeah, Sponge is a Sponge is a great band, man. Yeah. He's a hell of a hell of a songwriter, great singer. And um, you know, and, and I think an acquired taste for a lot of people. That's probably why um Sponge didn't do better because it was so eclectic. And mm. Vinny's voice is so eclectic. That's you know, rock and roll's a weird place, man. Like, you know, years ago when um they were forming velvet revolver uh matt and i are great friends and um he had produced some demos for me um back in 96 um and we've been friends ever since um when they were looking for a singer uh matt had asked me to come down and um slash said yeah, i'm not a fan of his voice so you know that's kind of like a that's you know what what you've got really when it comes to rock and roll music is as much as some people love you, there's going to be somebody that doesn't like what you do or what you sound like. Mm. And, you know, that's a hard thing as a singer. And, and I think in Vinny's case, great songwriter, I think he's a great singer and he's got such an eclectic, interesting voice, but that's a hard thing for some people to, 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 um, to stomach sometimes, you mm. know, that kind of singing, even like Miles Kennedy, a lot of people love his voice, but there's a lot of people who don't like that kind of operatic rock thing. And, and, um, mm. but, you know, in Slash's case, it works so well with what he's doing. And of course, you know, Alter Bridge and what Miles has done over the years. Yeah. Um, again, great, great singer. Um, acquired taste for some people. 
know? That's crazy. I think that's the headline right there that Kevin Martin almost tried out for a velvet revolver. I think that, <laughs> that would have <laughs> well, been they, cool. When Scott, when, when Scott didn't show up for one rehearsal, uh, they couldn't find him for about a week. Matt said, can you get down to the studio? And uh, I got wow. in my car, started driving down. He called me back and said, hey, you just showed up. I'll call you back. And that was it. That was my wow. one shot. Damn it. <laughs> so close. That would have been cool yeah. to play with those guys. But um, oh, so, yeah. yeah, so he's back to the Candlebox story. Um, in 2018, the founding members of the band leave to do these like day jobs. And then, and this is, I, hear, I interview a lot of bands and I hear these stories. Bands leave uh, to do day jobs. I think you said Barty is an attorney. So just for you, I mean, you can't answer the question for them, but for you, why have you never left? Why have you never gotten burned out on the music business or tried something else or? Maybe because I don't have a college degree that Barty has. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Fair enough. No, man. I think it's, it's mainly just because I, you know, music's been, it's been my soul since I, I can remember, man. I mean, honestly, it's really been the only thing I've thought about since I was, you know, walking at the age of one. I mean, music has been in my life since the beginning of of my being and, and it will be in my life. Um, when, when my being ends, you know, it's, um, it's all I want to do. And, uh, and, you know, I, I tease all the time, Oh, it's gonna be the last year and I'll give it up in like two years or something. But, you know, I certainly, I will tell you this when I hit 60, I will not be doing this because I know that my voice won't be at that level that I want it to be at. And I'm not Robert Plant and I'm not, um, you know, Ozzy Osbourne. I don't have their careers. I don't have the longevity and history that they have. Um, so I, I'm, I'm prepared to shut things down in, in about eight years. So get it while you can. Okay. Well, that's good to know. I'll definitely have to see you guys. I've seen you three times. So I'll have to see you another time. Um, so let's talk about the new album is actually, it's interesting because the theme is about division and lost direction, but it was actually recorded in 2019 before 2020. So, I mean, I guess this is just the way things have kind of been going in the world, but I mean, you tell me, I don't want to blab on anymore, but you tell me what this album's about. Well, you're exactly right. I mean, you know, um, we, we saw it starting, um, you know, right around the time that Trump started running for president, you know, when he started his campaign, um, this rhetoric uh, of, of divisiveness um, and it's, it's classic, um, um, I gotta be careful with this word because you're gonna have fans that aren't gonna agree with me. But it's 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 classic narcissism. It's classic sociopathic behavior. Um, well, yeah, that's con- pretty. Yeah, if you look up the definition of narcissistic personality disorder, I mean, I'm sorry, but yeah, he fits that definition for sure. I don't. I think even yeah. his fans would have to agree he's a narcissist for sure. Well, and you and you and you keep telling the story, um, and you keep you keep feeding that line people believe it. Um, right. and, you know, and, and it's, and, and, and that's been going on, you know, I'm certainly Donald Trump's not the first person to do that. I mean, that's, you know, that's how our government's been running the, you know, the country for the you know past 300 years. Um, that's how most governments run. That's how most societies run. Um, it, there's a constant misinformation that's being fed. Uh, and, and, and that's what allows them to get what they desire. And that's what this record's really about is, is this divisive nature that society um, has accepted um, and become, and these lone wolves. I mean, you think about the number of murders by guns that have happened since January 1st of this year. It's insane, man. It's crazy what's happening right now. And, and this does not come, you know, just out of the blue. This has been 
burnt, you know, it's, it's, it's been burning its way through our bellies for a long, long time. And, um, and people are losing their minds and it's, and it's incredibly, incredibly disturbing. And I, and I, and I just, you know, I, I wanted to write a record that kind of tells those stories, tells, you know, I've got a song in here called nothing less to lose, which is my favorite song. And, and, you know, it was inspired by Ace of Spades by Motorhead I wanted something that felt that way. Um, but really this song talks about, you know, these, these lone wolves that are out here right now, like, fuck it, man, I don't care. And, um, and that's scary. You know, that's really scary. I, I, I can't believe that this is what's happening in, in the United States right now. And, uh, it seems to be, um, at, at it's boiling point right now. And, and I don't even know when this is going to explode, if it can get any bigger, it's, it's really disturbing, but, uh, wolves is about who we become, what we become, um, and, and all facets. Um, there is the, the wolf pack, there is the lone wolf, um, there is the hurt wolf, um, there's the angry wolf. I mean, there's, there's all sorts of things out there. And, and, and that's kind of, uh, why I've decided to call the album wolves. Mm-hmm. Well, do you think that, you know, part of it's being locked down, everyone's kind of going stir crazy. Do you think now that hopefully concerts are coming back, people can come together? Cause when, when I go to a Candlebox concert or, you know, Guns N' Roses or whatever. I mean, I'm, I'm sure there's people that are fans of Trump, people that hate Trump, people that like, you know, this or that. I mean, everyone just comes together and goes, okay, we're a fan of this. I mean, or like Seahawks, you go to a Seahawks game. I mean, everybody's just a fan of the Seahawks and that's like something that brings people together. I feel like we've kind of lost that. Don't you think that's a big piece well, of it? Yeah. And I mean, let's hope that that's what happens. Let's hope that it it's music that actually, you know, brings this, you know, this country back together, the world back together because I think music has brought the world together so many times. Mm -hmm. Um, And if we can forget our differences and just agree to disagree and accept that there's something wrong, how do we fix it? You know, the the constitution begins with um, we, the people, and, you know, we, we run this country um, and, and it is our tax dollars that are paying for everything that's happening. And we have a right to speak up and we have a right to protest you know, um, looting and all that other shit is just opportunist. Um, and that's unfortunate, but you have opportunism in, in, in everything. And, and you can't change that in people and the people that feel that, that they deserve something again, is that word, um, mm-hmm. are the ones that are, you know, causing a lot of the problems, but at the same time, we need to respect one another and we need to respect one another's human rights and black lives do matter. And, and there is, you know, you can go back to world war II when these GIs came back uh, and you look at New Jersey or Long Island rather, where there's a, there was a law written in that black GIs were not allowed to buy homes in certain neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. That's systemic sure. racism. And it's been going on for a long, long time. And, and it's unfortunate. And, you know, I, if people are going to disagree with me, that's fine. Agree to, dis- to disagree, but accept that something is happening and something is wrong. And, and, it's got to change, man. And we have to come together and make that change happen. We have to respect one another's human rights, you know? Well, yeah, I don't think anybody can argue with the history um, there, but don't you think it's gotten better over the, or it feels like maybe now it's getting worse again. I don't know. It hasn't gotten better because once you start with systemic racism and redlining neighborhoods, it's, it stays that way. You, you know, it's okay. Maybe people are starting to understand that there's a problem, but the laws haven't changed. Um, you know, well, redlining is illegal, the, isn't it? it? It's illegal now, but those neighborhoods are still redlined. I mean, every one of them, you know, it's still, it still exists that way, you mm-hmm. know, and that's why you have the Bronx. That's why you have the projects in Cabrini green and, and places like that because of that. 
And, you know, in Los Angeles, I, you know, I don't know if you know this, but they just gave back $72 million property in Manhattan Beach because they stole it from a black family. I heard about that. Yeah. Yeah. In the early, in the early 1900s. And they just gave it back. And this property is worth $72 million, you know, and it was owned by a black family and it was taken from them by that city because they wanted it. And, and, and it's just now changing. So if, if that's what's occurring, then yeah, let's make that change happen now, you know, and, and again, you know, you're going to have some people that are listening to this are going to disagree with me and it, it's fine, you know, but do the research. But know yeah, what you're talking about. Well, I think just having these conversations of sometimes and talking about it, I I like hearing, I like hearing both sides, actually. I really like hearing both. I'm probably in the middle somewhere. So I like hearing both sides and both perspectives and then kind of making up my own mind going, okay, well, this makes sense to me. Yeah. I don't like to fall. I don't, you talk about Trump or you can talk about Biden or what. I don't like any politicians to be honest. I mean, there's very few that, that I go, oh, that guy's actually like really smart. And I like what they say. Um, So, and I think that's where we get into trouble too, is like, people just following, you know, not even politicians, but people in, in the media, they say, oh, they just agree with everything that person says. And that's, that's yeah. dangerous for both sides, yeah. really. So, but yeah, yeah. anyways, <laughs> we got off on a huge tangent, which is fascinating. I like hearing your opinions on this stuff, but yeah. So your album is, uh, is kind of about that theme. It's got some great songs and that's tough sometimes when you're interviewing bands and they have new stuff and, you know, you have to talk about it, but I really like these song, I like this, the two songs I've heard, My Weakness, which is, uh, you said it's kind of like an 80s pop Brian and Adams inspired s- song. I really like that one. Um, you didn't write it, but it was written about you. Is that right? Mm-hmm. About yeah, your my buddy Don wrote it for me. Okay. Yeah. But the one that you did write was uh, Let Me Down Easy. That was the first single. And that was actually written with uh, Chris Cornell's brother, Pete. Yeah, Peter Cornell. Yeah, he wrote that song for me. I told him I wanted something that was swampy and bluesy and and dark and and you know, we had reconnected uh, a couple years ago back in 2018 we hadn't seen one another uh, 20 years at least and um and i was like man how are you i'm so sorry about what happened with chris and you know it was great to catch up and see him and um i said man i would love to have a song from you on my next record if you're up for it and it, time came by and i said listen you got something can you send it to me and he sent me that track on acoustic and we made the full band version feel exactly like his acoustic version felt. And I was so jazzed when that song was done. I love it. It's a dark, swampy, bluesy rock and yeah. roll track about, uh, uh, about, um, I guess, um, redemption, you know, in, in some way, shape or form. Yeah. Is, are you going to be doing a full album with him maybe? Oh, I would love to. Okay. Um, I don't know. I mean, he's, he's sent me a couple of songs since then. Um, he and I have actually talked about maybe putting a, a, you know, Mark, a Cornell Martin record out or Martin and Cornell record out or mm-hmm. something, you know? Yeah. So you, you've toured with all these big bands like we talked about Metallica and Rush and you sold millions of record records. So I find it fascinating that you say you don't like your own voice. Like you don't listen back to recordings that you've sung on. You just trust the producer. Is that, is that really true? Is that something you just say to sound modest in interviews or did someone no, tell you, true. did someone tell you you weren't a good singer? Where does that idea, why don't you like your own voice? No, I mean, ask any producer that's working with you. They're like, yeah, he doesn't doesn't really want to listen back to it. Um, it's just, I think that I don't like how my voice sounds. It's not what I wanted it to sound like when I sing songs. You know, I would much rather sound like somebody like a, you know, Caleb Falwell is really great, you know, dark whiskey timber, you know, to their voice or, you know, or Michael McDonald or, you know, or Van Morrison or, you know, or Mick Jagger or Robert Plant, you know, these kind of, or Chris Robinson for that matter, you know, these 
it, just really, there's so much in their voice and I don't hear it in mine. So, mm. you know, that's, I guess that's where it comes from, you know, but get me behind a drum kit and I want to hear exactly what I did because that's what I love. I guess I love singing and I love being a singer in a band, but I'm a reluctant lead singer because I would much rather be a drummer. And that's probably where that comes from. It's like, if you feel that you got what you think the song needs as a producer, which is what I'm paying you for, then let's be done with it. Move on. Okay. So do you think that maybe you'll go switch back to the drums? Uh, you said at age 60, you can't sing anymore. So will you go back to drums then? <laughs> yeah. Who am I going to play drums for at the age of 60? I don't know. Like what? (laughs) I'm sure you can start with a group of some of Seattle guys or something. Somebody will play with you. Oh, I don't know about that. Just do it for fun. I don't know. What are you going to do after you retire from singing? Oh, I've got, you know, tons of other business things I'm involved with. My wife has a clothing line. I'm starting a men's swimwear line with her on that. Oh, don't you have a whiskey company too, or something like that? Did I hear that? We're we're starting one, but that was supposed to kick off last year. Bourbon, yeah. And it it, it got, you know, obviously 2020 has put everything on hold for a lot of people. So that's, uh, that's on hold for us, but that's, uh, that's going to happen as well. That's me and Adam, my bass player. Okay. That's super cool. Did you ever meet the, did you ever end up meeting the singer of Midnight Oil, Peter Garrett to tell him? I haven't. I haven't met him and I can't, you know, I cannot wait to, to tell him. I'm sure he's heard the story, but, or maybe, I mean, yeah. maybe not. Um, but I, yeah, I certainly can't wait to meet him and, and tell him, you know, thank you for giving me my, my career. Yeah. Yeah. That'd be amazing. Okay. I apologize in advance for this question. Cause I'm sure you're probably sick of the Courtney love stuff. So I'll just, I won't even make you tell the story. I'll just summarize it, but I did have a question about the end. So, cause basically she talked all the shit about you. And then you guys did this uh, magazine cover for the rocket, which is a Seattle magazine. And you kind of like spoofed her album cover and um, she talked a bunch of shit. And then she found your number somehow through a mutual friend or something. She calls you to, to talk shit and tell you off. This is the part of the story. I don't understand. She talked to you for two hours. <laughs> Why didn't you she hang won't. up the phone? Why did you let her she chew did. you out for two hours? <laughs> she didn't call me. She, a friend of mine um, called her. He's, he's okay. really good friends with her. He's like, and he's like, listen, what's your problem? why are you busting my buddy's balls? And she's like, ah, but I mean, this is back when, you know, she was still doing a lot of drugs sure, and sure. out of her skull. And, and, and he's like, hang on a second, I'm gonna put him on the phone. So I got on the phone with her and I was like, listen, I don't understand this. Like I'm a huge fan of yours. You know, I've got, you know, every record you released, I love, you know, uh, pretty on the inside. It's my favorite whole record. Um, and I don't understand. Like, I don't even know you. And she just rambled and rambled and rambled and, you know, and then of course, when the drugs take over in a conversation, I don't think half the time she knew what she was talking about, but uh, my, you know, my buddy ended up sending me his cell phone bill because, you know, I think it was like a thousand dollars. That was back when cell phones cost a fortune. He's like, you're going to pay this. I'm like, I didn't call her. You called her. <laughs> um, yeah. She, uh, I still never met her. Um, I, my drummer, Robin, uh, um, Australia. And I said, don't, don't you tell her that you play in cattle box. Uh, cause you'll get kicked off the, off the tour, you know? Um, but yeah, I don't know. I don't know what that was about, but she just certainly did not like us at all. That's weird. Yeah. It's, it's weird that I hear all these stories about people not liking you guys. Cause I definitely remember like people not liking stone tumble pilots, which is really funny because now I feel like they're revered as this great band. But I remember at the time, a lot of people thought stone tumble pilots was a ripoff band, but I don't remember the hate about Candlebox as much. So it's kind of interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so let's see, do you start a podcast? Is that started yet? Or are you going to start a podcast? No, I haven't started. I'm, I am starting a podcast. It's called rock and roll. Look it up. Okay. And, uh, um, that's the name of the podcast. It's called what? It's called rock and roll. Look it up. 
that that'll come up. That'll bring up like three thousand different podcasts, won't it? Yeah, and it's called a uh, or it's a uh, you're gonna do like nine songs. You're gonna do like deep research into the songs, like stuff that's not on Wikipedia. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It, yeah, it, I don't, I don't want to, you know, I, I really, my, my concept behind it is, you know, I, it's a saying that I came up with years ago. It's called rock and roll. Look it up. And what that means is, is, you know, people have kind of forgotten, you know, what makes rock and roll, you know, rock and roll, it, it's dangerous and it, and it needs, uh, it needs an outlet and people have to give it space. And, and the concept behind <laughs> the podcast is really the people that I'm going to interview you know, I want them to pick these songs and we're going to, we're going to go into them deep. These aren't going to be, you know, they'll probably pick one or two popular songs, but it's, it's really going to be, let's find out about this artist, you know, why, why you chose a song and, and what it represents to you and, and what that artist maybe was going through when they wrote that track. And these are going to be, um, you know, an hour long podcast and, and, you know, probably won't even get to the nine songs because we'll probably end up talking about them too much, but um, yeah, that's the concept behind it. And, uh, and, and really kind of digging into what makes musicians tick, you know, I've got a lot of friends lined up to do this, um, that are, that are musicians and, and rock stars alike. And, and, um, looking forward to picking their brains about, you know, the songs that inspire them. And then there's also the good, the bad and the ugly. And that's, you know, the ugly is going to be what they, the song that they absolutely hate and don't understand why anybody bothers, you know, bothers liking it. So of, that'll be interesting to find out. Of well. their own songs? Of anybody's, okay. their own or somebody else's. Do you do you have what are what are yours? What are the songs for you that are like that? I can't give you that because then then you're going to get my podcast. Damn it! Okay, well I tried. <laughs> well, thank you so much for doing this. I do like to end. Uh, we I think we covered everything. Uh, I do like to end each episode with a charity. I think you work with a breast cancer charity. It's Breast Cancer Society. Yeah. Okay, I could put that in the notes, and then people should uh, check out your website. Do you guys? I couldn't see. I think you did have some shows lined up for the future. Uh, shows in Seattle in November. Are those still happening? One at the Crocodile, yeah, one yeah. at the Paramount? Yeah, we start up in August. We've got three shows in August, and then we start touring, I think, September 2nd, all the way through uh, November 10th. Okay. And so uh, are those uh, dates locked up, or are you still working on that? No, they're locked. Yeah, we're, we'll be releasing all the dates, I think, in about three or four weeks. Oh, okay. Because yeah, I, I think I only saw like three on the website. So are you coming to Phoenix? I think we are. I just don't. Yeah. I think we're playing the Van, Van Buren, Van Buren, Van, Van Buren. Yeah. Okay. That's it. Cool. I'll try to check that out if I'm around. So awesome. Well, thanks so much for doing this, Kevin. I really appreciate it. You got it, Chuck. Thanks, man. All right. Talk to you later. We'll see you. Bye-bye. Thank you to Kevin Martin of Candlebox. Again, the new album is called Wolves. Check it out. See the band live. If they come to your city, I've seen them three times and they're great. Uh, make sure to follow Kevin on, and Candlebox on social media to keep up with tour dates and check out their website. They have some really cool merch on there. Uh, thank you so much for listening and making it all the way through this interview. If you enjoyed this one, uh, check out some of the other episodes on my show. I got one with Vinny Dabrowski of Sponge. who We referenced that interview earlier. Uh, I've also interviewed Dale Crover from the Melvins, Robin Will Wilson from Gin Blossoms, Jeremy Popoff of Lit, and uh, many more. So, if you want to support the show, you can like, share, or comment on YouTube or social media. That helps me out. And uh, make sure to subscribe or follow me on social media so you don't miss any of the future episodes. And if you want to go above and beyond, you can write me an iTunes review of the show. That will help a lot. Have a great rest of your day, and remember to shoot for the moon.